Good evening. This is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundance Success Series. Our primetime mastermind that promotes empowered focus, decisive action, and inspired outcome. Our spotlight is on success. I have civil rights pioneer, William Ferguson Reed. He was the first African American elected to the General Assembly in the state of Virginia. Reed grew up in Richmond, Virginia, attended public schools. He went to Virginia Union University for his undergrad and medical school at Howard University. Reed is one of the founders of the Crusade of Voters, organized in 1955, and one of the formidable political organizations in the state. It lobbied for voter registration among African Americans and conducted get-out-to-vote drives and enabled Reed to win a seat in the House of Delegates from the city of Richmond in 1967 on his second try. He was the first African American in that governmental body for 82 years. Dr. Reed served three terms in the assembly, and afterwards he was a regional medical doctor for the U.S. Department of State. This is a fantastic interview to get a glimpse of what life was like before integration, before voters' rights, and before we even had a seat in politics, not only in Virginia, but in America. Awesome interview. You'll enjoy. William Ferguson Reed, welcome to the show. How are you doing this evening? Fine, fine. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. I wanted you to tell our audience who you are and a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, my name is Ferguson Reed. Uh, I'm a native of Richmond, Virginia. I went through the public schools here, which were segregated. Uh, Incidentally, I was born in 1925, uh, so I've seen quite a uh did a change over the last uh, years or so. Um, I uh, graduated from uh, public schools here in, in Richmond. I went to Virginia Union University, got a BS degree there. Then I went to Howard, and I got uh, a medical degree there. And I spent five years in St. Louis at Homer G. Phillips Hospital. After that, I went into the Army and then to the Navy and then to the Marine Corps. Ended up in Marine Corps in Korea. Uh, stayed in Korea for a year and then I went to the Naval Hospital at Bethesda. Spent a year there and then I returned to Richmond in 1955. At the height of the school desegregation cases, um, they had a referendum to decide whether or not the uh, schools would be integrated or not. And, of course, uh, we lost, and uh, the state decided that they would uh, uh, not comply with the Supreme Court. They, uh, Some of the schools shut down rather than integrate. Uh, many of the black students didn't have schools to go to, and uh, some of them uh, were farmed to other areas throughout the United States. Uh, families took them in so that they could continue their education. Uh, because of that, we got involved in voter registration here in Virginia. Uh, they had a poll tax, which had to be paid. At that time, it was a dollar and a half. But you had to pay it six months prior to an election, and you had to have paid it for three years. Three years? Uh, three prior years. Really? So how, okay, you're, you're explaining it to an audience that most, uh, at least half, will not have been 
born to even know what a poll tax is. Can you explain that? What is the poll tax? Well, it was a tax. Uh, the way it came about, uh, immediately after uh, the end of slavery, after the emancipation, uh, blacks were greatly involved in politics here in Virginia, and they held elective office. We had black congresspersons. We had a black senator from Virginia. And because of that, the power of the vote, uh, they had a constitutional amendment in 1902. And at that time, they said, and we're going to establish a poll tax. Uh, it's a dollar and a half, but you have to remember that a dollar and a half was a whole lot of money at that time. Uh, a pack of cigarettes cost 15 cents. A loaf of bread probably cost about 10 cents. A quart of milk probably cost about 10 cents. So a dollar and a half was quite a bit of money. And not only did you have to pay it for the current year, but you had to pay it for the pre three preceding years, making a total of a hundred a dollar, uh, four fifty. But and uh when this constitutional amendment was passed, it was called to the attention of the guy that was pushing it. They said, uh, you know, this is going to keep a lot of poor white people from voting also. And he said, that's exactly why we have it. We don't want any blacks. Of course, he didn't say black. He used the N-word. All poor white folks voting in Virginia. So it was a carryover uh, in order to keep the people in power in power, and it uh, kept them there until uh, the Voter Rights Act. Uh, so that's how I got involved into the whole situation. Now, the school thing that you were mentioning about people actually being farmed out. We right. also have uh, people who may not understand what that all meant, as, you know, we've had integrated schools for a little over 50 years in most areas. Right. So you yeah. would say somebody could not go to school where you were, and they would have to be farmed to where? How far? Well, this is in Farmville, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, they closed the schools down. But they opened what they call white academies, private schools, so the white kids could uh, go to academies or private schools mm-hmm. and get a uh, an education which would serve as high school. But the blacks did not have that, so some of the churches started homeschooling them in the basement. Uh, some who had relatives in Ohio uh, sent their kids to Ohio or other states that had... Uh, integrated schools, so they went up that way to uh, further their education, but there are some who did not get any education at all. Mm. Now, in terms of your education, were, you were uh, strictly uh, segregated schools for your Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Uh, when I went to medical school, I could have walked to the Medical College of Virginia, <laughs> uh, which was in walking distance of my house, my, my family's house. But instead, I had to go up to Howard University, and uh, uh, which was much more expensive, uh, running board and all of that. Which uh, you know, if I had stayed in Richmond, it would be wouldn't have been that additional expense. Mm-hmm. So you went to Virginia Union, and what it was was uh, being a doctor the first thing on your mind? When what when I was in uh, well undergrad. I, yeah, I decided that when I was at uh, in at Virginia Union. Oh, really? That I was going to medicine. 
what what part of medicine did you? I went to uh, surgery. I uh, well, I'm a certified surgeon. Mm -hmm. so I was the first uh, black certified surgeon in Richmond, and so as when we got there, we had to integrate the hospitals because mm -hmm. all of the hospitals were uh, segregated, uh, and. The way they got around it, the Richmond Academy of Medicine was the uh, uh, medical society. And in order to get on the staff of any hospital or to join the AMA, you had to be first a member of the Richmond Academy of Medicine. Well, in their constitution, they said that only white physicians could become members. So you were in the catch-22 when you applied to a hospital. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, well, you know, you have to be academy of, a member of the Academy of Medicine in order to uh, uh, be uh, on the staff of this hospital. So you couldn't join the Academy of Medicine, so you couldn't be on the staff of the hospital. So that was another thing we had to break down. So uh, fortunately, the Hill-Burton Act uh, was... Uh, it, it performed the the the, the Congress passed the Hill Burton Act, and under that, in order to get Medi Medicare money, you had to have an integrated staff. So that we did have one hospital here that uh, was built with Hill Burton's funds, and of course they could not deny us uh, privileges on that staff. And then eventually, after many many uh, attempts, the Academy of Medicine. Uh, took that restriction of the clause that you had to be white in order to be a member out of that, uh, uh, out of their constitution. But of course by that time there were several other hospitals that, uh, accepted blacks on their staff. Now, you're, you're talking about a, a time that uh, many people may not remember and then you're going to talk half of them would remember. But for those who don't remember, what was Richmond like Socially, uh, you know, it's the cradle of the Confederacy, but we want to know a little bit more about what it was like. What was it like for you? Because you were one of the first uh, in many in many ways. How were you treated? And you know, what was Black society like back then? Well, we uh, all of the Blacks belonged to the same society. There wasn't any stratification mm -hmm. uh, in, in, among the Blacks. Uh, we went to school with everybody. We all played together and we all uh, socialized together. And so uh, it was strictly a black and white society. Uh, as the, as you remember, the waiting rooms and the train stations, bus stations were segregated. Bathrooms were segregated. Drinking fountains were segregated. Blacks could uh, not try on clothes in the department stores. Uh, the department stores and the uh, five and dimes did not let you sit at the counter. Uh, so it was completely uh, black and white, and there was no integration whatsoever. Churches were segregated. Uh, we had an incident here when um, one of the black Baptist churches sent missionaries to Africa, and one of the persons that they converted in Africa came to Virginia Union, but he was not allowed to go to the church that uh, converted him to Christianity wow. in Richmond. 
So that uh, exact, was exactly how it worked. They converted him to Christianity in Africa, but when he came to join the church that converted him, they wouldn't let him join. Mm-hmm. So you can see how ridiculous the whole situation is. It is crazy. That's absolutely ridiculous, but that was life back then. You got to Howard University. What did you study there, and how was life back at Howard back when you were there? Well, uh, I, was, I finished I was at Howard in the uh, medical school, mm-hmm. and uh, we it was still segregated in Washington. The only thing you could do in Washington that you couldn't do in Richmond was to sit uh, any way you wanted there on the streetcars, but the theaters were not integrated, and the department stores... Uh, was one of them, Garfinkel's, almost refused to serve blacks. In other words, uh, they, they, it wasn't any secret that you would be treated nasty if you went into Garfinkel's. Uh, they did not want any black customers. Uh, so it was strictly a segregated society. Uh, we had theaters were segregated. Uh, the Howard Theater, which was well known at that time, had, uh, bills every, Saturday, uh, they would bring in uh, the big bands and the uh, dancers and comedians and the ink spots and all of those uh, various quartets would come through the Howard Theater. So uh, that was something that we looked forward to. Mm-hmm. Was the Griffith Theater there? Was the Griffith, Griffith uh, Stadium, rather. It was a stadium, right? Yeah, but uh, I think they were segregated, but... Of course, neither the Redskins or the uh, uh, Washington team had any blacks. Okay. Uh, at that particular time, the Negro Baseball League was very popular, mm-hmm. and many of those players were better than the uh, professionals on the Emergent League and National League, but they never had an opportunity to play together. Mm-hmm. After the season, so they would... Um, integrate and uh, do bond storming and go to various cities uh, as integrated teams to do an exhibition, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe that the School of Medicine you may have gone to is now the School of Communications. Well, it was the old building, uh, maybe so. It was across from Friedman's Hospital. Mm-hmm. The dental the school pre- was next to mm-hmm. the medical school. And yeah, Friedman Hospital, I believe, is the, communi- uh, the the School of Communications. I remember okay. it as the School of Communications. And Griffith Theater is now where the Howard University Hospital sits. Uh, uh, Griffith uh, Stadium? Yeah, the stadium, yeah. Okay. That's where Howard University Hospital is off of uh, George Avenue. Right. And uh, they're just getting ready to open. You mentioned Howard Theater. They're going to open that on the 12th of uh, April this year. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And because they've redone the theater and fixed it up, it looks magnificent. I have to send you some pictures of it. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, they did the same thing here in Richmond, the old Hippodrome Theater, which was on that circuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have remodeled that, mm-hmm. and uh, they're just beginning to open it. So it's supposed to they're supposed to get uh, bands coming down and entertainers coming down that. Uh, uh, and from New York, and I guess they'll come on down through the circuits, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, and Richmond. Uh, so I think they're trying to revive that. Now you got politically involved right there in Richmond, and you started uh, the Crusade of Voters. Right, right. 
the reason we had to start that the NAACP was very active at that time, and uh, the NAACP uh, was a group that won all of these court cases. So the Virginia General Assembly was trying to put them out of business mm -hmm. by demanding they give up their membership list. You have to remember that uh, the NAACP in Virginia was predominantly rural. We had a very good executive secretary, Lester Banks, mm -hmm. who went into every county and established a branch of the NAACP. Uh, so most of the people who made up the NAACP were rural people and they depended on their livelihood on whites or uh, people who were segregationists. So the NAACP did not want to give up the list because all of these people on the list would be reprimanded, fired, and ostracized in the counties that they lived in. So because the NAACP was uh, under attack, uh, the Voter Registration Committee decided that we would separate from the NAACP and um, form a separate organization, uh, the, and we call it the Crusade of Voters. And we could be partisan, and we could support candidates, and we could get involved in issues. So we uh, decided that uh, we would try to register the voters in Richmond so that we could be a political force. And the way we did it, we decided that uh, uh, in Richmond there were 68 voting precincts. Of that number, uh, about 25 to 27 of them had enough blacks in that that if we could get them registered to vote in, on election day, that they would be a formidable force uh, because... All of the elections were held at large, and in Richmond, they had nine city council positions, but in order to uh, get elected to, everybody in the city of Richmond could vote. So that meant that there was a white majority and that uh, uh, we would never be able to get a black unless we were completely organized. So this is what we did, and uh, we were able to increase the, the vote by forming individual civic organizations in each one of the precincts, uh, we thought that uh, we would try to develop from the base of the pyramid rather than the top. A lot of organizations, when they start, they are top-heavy with people involved, but they don't have the people at the base involved. And in order for any organization to succeed, you have to have a strong foundation. So our idea was that we would build that foundation first, and then uh, once we got the people involved, and to show them why it's to their advantage to vote uh, and get them educated as to who to vote for, then we would be able to make some success. So eventually we were able to get uh, blacks elected to the city council, and uh, a black mayor elected. Uh, and How long did it take from your beginning? Oh, it took about five years, four to five years. <laughs> but the way we did it, we started endorsing white candidates when to, for instance, on the 
uh, nine members, we would pick out uh, three or four uh, uh, moderate. They weren't liberal. <laughs> there may be a shade of difference uh, from the uh, segregationists. And uh, we would uh, tell them what we wanted, and if they agreed to, to work with us, we would put them on our slate. So we first were able to get uh, change the complexion from complete segregationists to moderates. Mm-hmm. moderate whites, and then once we established that relationship, we were able to put some blacks on the slate with understanding that the whites that we were putting on would vote for the blacks, and uh, so that way we would be able to get uh, a majority uh, of people that we endorsed uh, on the nine-member city council, so we are able to have some influence uh, by changing the philosophy of a lot of the whites. Once they saw that we were able to get whites elected, then we were able to change somewhat the people, their their philosophy on uh, government, uh, just from the fact that we had not a majority, but just enough to swing votes one way or another. Well, that's good. Um, now, you got into politics. How long was it after you uh, you formed the crusade of voters, uh, you know, um, that you decided, hey, this is something I need to do. Well, we had two things at that time uh, where the crusade was uh, nonpartisan. In other okay. words, well, most of the well, the city council was a, a nonpartisan election. Uh, the other part, the, the Virginia General Assembly, uh, was partisan. Now, the Democratic Party at that time was controlled by the Byrd machine. They were the ones that were uh, doing the massive resistance and closing the schools and so forth. And they, uh, because they were the Republicans were not active, they were the party. In order to uh, get elected, you had to be nominated by the uh, in the Democratic primary. Uh, the primary was the thing. Because there were no Republicans in opposition, if you passed the primary, you were usually automatically elected. So two or three of us, a professor of uh, uh, political science at Virginia Union, Tinsley Spragans, and I decided we wanted to go ahead and try to integrate the Democratic Party. So we were able, with the the help of a few liberal white uh, Sergeant Reynolds and some of the others, uh, we were able to make inroads into uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, the logical step was that we wanted uh, blacks to run for the Virginia General Assembly. Now, we talk about gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the black formerly... The, in the Virginia General Assembly, five of the delegates from Richmond came from Richmond, mm-hmm. which had a large black population, population, but not large enough, uh, to elect a black. And four were elected from the county, Henrico County, which is all white, just almost 100%. So in anticipation of the black vote increasing, as they saw that we were able to get more, uh, Moderates elected in the city, the Democratic Party had the General Assembly change 
the election of members to the General Assembly from Richmond and Henrico, they combined Richmond with Henrico. So that meant nine people at large running from an area which was the size of a congressional district. So you could see that uh, they were anticipating that uh, uh, black vote would increase and eventually someone would try to get a uh, uh, black elected to the uh, General Assembly. Mm-hmm. So we had been working with the whites in Richmond and had a pretty good relationship with the Democrats by endorsing, you know, some of them to city council. So Spragas and I said, well, uh, we think that you should, uh, on this nine-member slate running from Richmond and Henrico, you should have a black on there because we're not going to vote for an all-white slate. So they we convinced them to do that, and uh, we made a suggestion of a person who agreed that he would run, and we thought that he had a pretty good chance to win. But after selling them on that idea, uh, the candidate that we uh, all agreed on would run decided that he would not run. Why? Uh, because he didn't think he could win. Now, what year was this? This was in 1965. Okay. okay. So they said, well, Fergie, you talked us into putting the black on it. It looks like you're going to have to run, <laughs> which wasn't my intention at the time, but... Uh, this was a little late in the game, so I said, well, okay, I would do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was on the slate of, of with eight whites. And um, in the general, in the primary, uh, I lost to a segregationist by about 30-some votes. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a recount, and we had a recount. And one of the predominant white precincts, when we had a recount, they couldn't find the votes from that precinct. Mm-hmm. So I was, without that precinct, they couldn't count it. I was automatically put on the Democratic slate. However, at the general election, the fellow that I defeated in the primary had a bunch of, uh, a lot of segregationist groups that had, uh, developed over the school desegregation uh, fight uh, with the group like the Ku Klux Klan, the White Citizens Council, uh, Committee on State Sovereignty, a whole lot of uh, uh, white segregationists uh, endorsed this guy and they had a write-in vote for him and he defeated me in the general election. Now, what year so, was this? Huh? What year? What's this? That was the same, 1965. Okay. So, the 19, that was the election of 1965. Okay. So, we, group of us reanalyzed what we didn't do in that uh, election, so we reorganized, and two years later, I ran again, and I won. Mm -hmm. And I won for three terms. And on the... I was defeated uh, in 1976 by a segregationist who ran on the busing, uh, uh, the busing issue. Now, tell everybody what that busing issue. Tell everybody in the audience that means. Well, the uh, in order to to desegregate the schools, 
the federal courts demanded that blacks had to be bussed into white neighborhoods to kind of integrate throughout. Was that Mecklenburg and... Well, it was Mecklenburg in North Carolina. Okay. Uh, I think they did that in North Carolina, too. But this is Richmond, Henrico, and uh, okay. this area, which was a hotbed of uh, segregationists because okay. this was the home of the bird machine, the Richmond News the papers, the Richmond Times Dispatch, and the Richmond uh, News Leader were rabid segregationists, and they fought segregationists. They wanted to uh, succeed from the Union and all of that stuff, which made it racial tensions even more. So when this guy uh, came out against Bussin, naturally I had to be for it, but he was able to rip the opposition up again, and uh, I lost in that election. But uh, so that's basically what. But now we have uh, in the House probably eight or nine blacks, and in the Senate five or six blacks in the Senate. So, and uh, as a result of that, Doug Wilder was elected to the Senate while I was in the General Assembly in the House, and we elected another black. So there were three of us at one time. Uh, in the Virginia General Assembly. And as you know, Doug went on to become lieutenant governor and he became the first, uh, black governor, you know, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So there had, there had been progression and blacks have become more politically involved. Uh, city councils throughout Virginia, uh, school boards throughout Virginia. Uh, so we have school board superintendents throughout Virginia. So, uh, the integration is moving right along. Open housing has taken place. Open housing, uh, we, uh, uh, now have integrated neighborhoods which are, are, uh, you know, moving right along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I was wondering, after you were defeated, what happened next for your career? Well, after I uh, defeated and because uh, medicine was changed and the practice is no longer private practice of medicine and uh, we began to get the HMOs coming in and so forth, I was a little decided that I would either have to go in with a partnership or uh, I could not continue to practice solo. I heard about a physician with the Department of State. They had their own medical uh, unit, and so I applied to them, and I was accepted as what they call regional medical officers, and uh, we were assigned, uh, the Department of State has about, at that time, had about uh, 18 or 20 physicians and about 30 uh, uh, nurse practitioners mm-hmm. serving in the embassies throughout the United, throughout the world. And the medical officers were assigned to regions, and in that region you would be stationed at one country, but you would have to travel to four or five neighboring countries in the uh, area. So uh, I was with them from 1977 until 1990. Uh, they have mandatory retirement in the State Department, so I had to retire at that time, but I would, would go back... Uh, they would call me back uh, for temporary duty for four or five years. Mm-hmm. Then I became involved with uh, uh, 
the field of addiction. During that time with the State Department, they sent me to NYU to get a master's in public health in addiction medicine, uh, diagnosing and uh, treating people who were addicted to alcohol and uh, other drugs. In the State Department, the main addiction is alcohol. Uh, so they, uh, I, I was able to work with them as part of my uh, duties with the State Department. So uh, after retiring from the State Department, I went with a company that uh, reported on drug testing results. A lot of uh, employers have drug testing in order to be employed you have to be drug free but all of these positive tests were referred to physicians uh, specializing in addiction medicine to interview the people to find out if they had a legitimate reason for the drug if they had a legitimate reason we would report that they did have a legitimate reason and they you know could be employed so I worked with them for about 10 years, and uh, I retired from them also. Mm -hmm. 